Take a Bible, find 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at the end of 1 John this morning. If you've got a bulletin on the way in, there are some notes. You can track along with some of the things that we're going to talk about. In my personal Bible reading this year, uh, I decided I would just start in Genesis and I'd go all the way to Revelation. Uh, That was the goal that I set for myself. We're here about the middle of the year, and I'm about in the middle of the Bible. This week I came to Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. It's 12 chapters long, 222 verses. It's short enough that you can read the entire book in one sitting. And it's always uh, an interesting experience to me when you can read a book of the Bible in its entirety in one sitting and sort of take it all in. I've moved on and now I'm in Isaiah and Isaiah is long. It just goes on and on and on. And it, you could read the whole thing in one sitting, but it's really big and there's a lot to take in and try to get your arms around. With Ecclesiastes, several mornings this week, I just read through the entire book and it's small enough that you can see big ideas and you can see connections and you can see themes repeated in that book. It's a helpful way to study the Bible, and it's something you can certainly do with the book of 1 John. In fact, I would encourage you, if you haven't done it yet, at some point over these summer months, just sit down in your Bible reading and read the entirety of 1 John. It won't take you an excessively long amount of time, but it'll help you see connections that maybe we miss when we read passages each week in isolation. I'll give you one example. The word truth in 1 John 3.19, that's our passage, links back to the previous passage. And Hunter preached last week. He ended with verse 18. Verse 18 actually ends with the word truth. And our passage picks up with that word truth. John's repeating those ideas. It's just a reminder that even though we've put a break in between verse 18 and 19, in John's mind, it's the same train of thought, the same flow of thought. Likewise, the reference to the Holy Spirit in verse 24 links what we're talking about this morning to what we're going to talk about next week, the Holy Spirit. So we're breaking it up, but the book as a whole is filled with connections. It's one big thought. And that one big thought centers around the idea of our assurance of salvation. John wrote this letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. And we've seen that. We've pointed this out almost every week in 1 John 5.13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not writing this letter to convince us that we ought to believe in Jesus. He's writing this letter to people that he assumes already believe in Jesus, and he's writing to help us know with certainty that we do in fact have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To help us know, he gives us tests, and we've talked about three of them so far, the moral test, the social test, in the Christological test. John has circled around. He's, he's brought these up. He's moved on to another one. He's gone back to a previous one. In this passage, I'm reading out of the ESV. It's one paragraph, verse 19 to 24. In this one paragraph, all of those tests show up in one paragraph. It's like these three tests that he's been cycling through. He brings them all together in this one paragraph. And I think This is a helpful quote from John Stott. This is from his commentary on 1 John. He says, 
John unites, talking about our paragraph, he unites the various strands which he has been unfolding separately in these first three chapters of his letter. No one, take this in, no one may dare to claim that he lives in Christ and Christ in him unless he is obedient to the three fundamental commands. He calls them commands. We're calling them tests. Unless he's obedient to the three fundamental commands which John has been expounding, which are, we've talked about them, belief in Christ, love for the brothers, and moral righteousness. All the tests show up here. It's like he's sort of trying to put a bow on this idea. And John, as he brings all these three tests together, he knows that it's a lot for you and I to take in. And I just want you to understand and be mindful of the tone that John is writing with when he writes to us. He's not writing, John the Apostle, he's not writing with a sense of disappointment in God's people. He's not writing with a sense of frustration with God's people. He's not irritated with God's people. Instead, John is writing as a pastor to those who struggle with doubt. And the word beloved in verse 21 is just a reminder that John is a pastor and he's writing to, here's one of those terms of endearment we've seen all the way through 1 John, he's writing to people that he cares about. And his aim for them is not that they're fearful and doubtful, but that they're filled with faith and optimism and hope and that they're encouraged. And so that brings us to the big idea of this passage. This is a great big idea, something that you and I need to take in. Even when we struggle with doubt, we can know that we have a relationship with Jesus. John, as a pastor, knows as he lays these tests out, Some people are not going to be encouraged. Some of these people are going to be moved to doubt and to fear. That's not his aim. His aim really is to encourage. And he wants us, even if we're wrestling with doubts, to know. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know. Look at verse 24. By this we know. He's telling us there is a way that you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus. Even in the midst of wrestling and struggling with doubt. So you take your copy of the scriptures, let's read this paragraph, and then let's pray that God would guide our discussion, our time together. 1 John 3, 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come to you as your people. We celebrate what you have done for us in sending Jesus. We celebrate his life and his death and his resurrection as we have taken the Lord's Supper this morning. 
Father, we come to your word and we believe it's our authority, it's our standard. It is sufficient that we would be equipped for life and godliness. And Lord, we come to this passage and we find John, a pastor, telling us how we can know, how we can have certainty. Lord, we struggle with doubts and questions. You know that. John knew that. And our prayer this morning is that you would work this certainty into our hearts, not according to the wisdom of the world, not according to our emotions, but according to the good news of the gospel. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So most of you know I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. I lived there my entire life until Brooke and I moved to Kentucky so that I could go to seminary. I attended one church in Amarillo, Trinity Baptist Church. It was a great church. I love my pastor there. He's no longer there, but I had one pastor the entire time I was there at Trinity Baptist Church. As a young child, I made a profession of faith. As an elementary student, I was baptized in that church. And looking back, I'm grateful that Trinity Baptist was a church that didn't just emphasize people making a decision to follow Jesus, but it emphasized people actually following Jesus as disciples. And so I look back and I think about the way our pastor led our church. I think about the Sunday school teachers I had all through elementary school and middle school and high school. And think about the people who mentored me and discipled me and helped me learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I think back on that time in my life, baptized as an elementary student, Grew up there, matriculated through all the classes from the nursery all the way up to the newly married class. I really don't see or remember a lot of times where I questioned and I doubted my salvation, especially as a young believer growing up in elementary school and middle school and uh, my early high school years. I don't remember questioning and doubting and having uncertainty. I do remember that about halfway through my time in high school, we invited a guest speaker to come to our church, and he was sort of a a well-known guy, at least regionally, and it was sort of a, I guess you would call a revival-type setting. He was going to preach Sunday, and then Sunday night, and then Monday night, and Tuesday night, and throughout the week, and somewhere in that week, this man speaking convinced me that I was 100% totally lost, Just to be honest with you, he scared me to death. The way he talked was different than the way I was used to hearing preachers talk. And I don't just mean content, I mean delivery. The things he said made me very uneasy and uncertain. And I remember about halfway through this week of having him there, he got ready to give the altar call. And I I couldn't get down there fast enough because I thought, I'm lost. I had never wrestled with that in my life, and I just became completely convinced I am not a Christian person. Now, what was going on? Maybe part of that experience for me was that I trusted Christ as an elementary student, and as you go through middle school and then as you get into high school, you experience a little bit more life. And maybe I needed somebody to sort of grab me by the spiritual shirt collar and say, hey, buddy, this is what you need to be doing. Maybe that's what I needed to hear. Maybe it was, I think this is part of it, that he was a little bit manipulative and heavy-handed in his approach. Not that he said things that weren't true, but just that his overall tactic seemed to be, I want to scare you into making a decision to follow Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, it worked. I was terrified. All my friends were terrified. And on this one particular evening, it was like revival broke out up at the front of the church. 
He gave this altar call. We all came to the front. And I remember my pastor gathered us up, a bunch of high school students mostly, and he walked us this way in our sanctuary through a door that's located about right there. We went into what was a choir room. It used to be a choir room right there. And he sat us down in the chairs. He had us. He could have said, look, our baptism numbers are lagging. I'm going to baptize all of you. And you know what we would have said? Do it twice. Let's make sure it takes. Like we were terrified, whatever. Yes, we're in. And instead he sat us down and he said, okay, this was our pastor. He loved us. He had baptized us in that church. He had shared the gospel with us when we initially trusted in Christ. He sat down and he said, let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about who God is and let's talk about who you are and let's talk about when you trusted Jesus, and he could look all of us in the eye and say, I remember when I prayed with you or when I led you to the Lord, and I remember your baptism. And he could say, let's talk about what it means to follow Jesus, and let's talk about repentance. It's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. Rather than try to scare us into a decision, he pastored us with wise counsel. He shepherded us with wise counsel. And I'll be honest with you, most of us were saved. And what we didn't need is to get re-saved or re-baptized or do anything like that. We needed to be reminded about truths that were greater than the emotions we were feeling in that moment. I think that's what John is doing in this passage. He's a pastor. He loves people. He cares about people. He is not writing. He does not say, I am writing to scare you to death. He says, I'm writing to those of you who believe in Jesus that you can know and have certainty and have assurance that you have eternal life. And so he brings these three tests together. He's been talking about them. He brings them all together in one passage. And then it's almost like he calls a timeout and says, let me remind you about some things that are greater than the emotions you may be feeling as you think about these tests. So I want you to see several things in this passage. First of all, I just want you to see all the tests. They all show up in this passage. In this passage, John brings all three tests together. The first one is the moral test. The moral test involves keeping God's commandments. That's the test. You're not keeping his commandments to earn your salvation, but once you've believed in Jesus, you're keeping God's commandments. That's one of the ways you can have certainty. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. We'll come back to that in a minute. Because we keep his commandments, we do what pleases him. Look what he says in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. It's the idea that we need to know what God has commanded and we need to keep it. It's no coincidence that the great reformers, men like Luther and Calvin, when they set out to teach people the truth of the Scriptures, many of these people learning it for the very first time. They've been churched all their life, but they're learning the truth of the Scripture for the very first time. They write catechisms. And in these early catechisms, they almost always include the Ten Commandments. Why did they think it was so important that God's people learn the Ten Commandments? It's because we need to know what God has commanded us to do and who God has commanded us to be. 
before we're converted to faith in Jesus, we need to know God's commandments because it's the commandments, it's the law of God that exposes our sin. It's the commandments that we hold up like a mirror and we say, oh, that's not a pretty picture. God has set the standard and I have fallen far short. You've got to know the commandments to recognize that you haven't kept them. After conversion, we keep God's commandments because we look at our new life in Jesus Christ and we say, how am I going to live? It seems as though the Creator would know how life works best. He has said, this is how life works best. I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to obey that. I'm going to seek to honor Him in my life. John ties that idea of keeping the commandments to our assurance. It's the moral test, keeping God's commandments. The second test he mentions is the Christological test. That means believing in the name of Jesus. Believing in the name of Jesus. If you like to make notes in your Bible, look at verse 23 and circle the word name. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, the name. This name that we believe in is more than the audible pronunciation of the letters J-E-S-U-S. You have a name, I have a name. It's what we call each other. It's what we refer to each other as. That's not what he means when he says the name of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the name of God was who God was was, who he is, who he will always be, what he had done for his people. It encompassed all of his character and his attributes and his actions. That's what the name of Jesus refers to, his character and all that he's done for God's people. That's why John spells it out like this, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. He's the son The Son of God is by definition fully and truly God. When human beings have children, they're human children. When we think about God having a son, the Father having a son, we think He's God. He's truly God. He's Jesus. It's the name that His human parents gave Him. God truly became man. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. Truly God, truly man, his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the one that God said he would send to set all things right that had been made wrong through our sin and our rebellion. When John says in the Christological test that you need to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. He is not saying, how many of you will raise your hands, give a thumbs up, hit like on social media for Jesus? And you can fill in the blanks with what you believe about Jesus. He's saying to us, there is truth about who Jesus is. He is God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah. This is a doctrinal test. It's a theological test. We don't get a wide open lane to decide what we want to believe about Jesus. We get the truth about Jesus and John says the Christological test is do you believe the truth about Jesus? Thirdly, the social test. That involves loving one another. Hunter talked about this last week. He did a great job. Verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and 
love one another. How are we supposed to love one another? Just as he commanded us. How did he command us? He said, you love each other like I've loved you. That's the social test. Do you love other believers? Do you love the people that God has put in your church family here at Emmanuel? Do you love the annoying people that God has sent to Emmanuel? I don't see any of them in this service. I think most of them were in the first service. So look around and think about all the people that probably came earlier this morning. Do you love those people? Do you love people in our church family who are much, much younger than you? Do you love those people? If you say yes, I would say, well, how? How would we see that love on display? Because John talks about, 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. Hunter talked about this. This love is a sacrificial love. How would we see you sacrificing for those people? And conversely, what about people in our church family who are a lot older than you? Do you love those people? And if you say, yes, I love those people, we say, well, how do we know? How do we see that on display? It's not just a, a, a love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. It's the social test. Do you love God's people? You add all those up together, and some of you are thinking, how in the world am I supposed to pass that test? Keeping God's commandments, abiding and believing in the truth about Jesus, and loving God's people, especially the ones you just included, how am I supposed to pass that test? Many of us hear those tests, especially combined together, and we start to have doubts and we start to have questions. That doesn't surprise John a bit. John knows that believers will struggle with doubts. He's not surprised. He knows it is part of our nature as sinful human beings in seasons, in days, in experiences, in moments, to have doubts about our relationship as we think about these tests. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart. Why would we need to reassure our heart? It's because we have doubts. And John knows that. And John doesn't want you to just follow your heart however you may be feeling or however the guest preacher makes you feel or however I make you feel or however your circumstances make you feel. He says, you might need to reassure your heart here. You might need to not listen to your heart, but talk to your heart. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, whenever our heart condemns us, he knows there will be times in your life where your heart condemns you and says, no way, no way you know Jesus. Not a chance. How many times have you done that? How many times have you said to God you wouldn't do it and you did it again? How many times have you said to God you wouldn't think about that or talk like that and you continue to do it? Zero chance. You don't pass the tests. Our heart is going to condemn us. And this is what John says. Look at verse 20. When our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than the things you feel in your heart. You say, well, what does that mean? John explains it. He knows everything. He's greater than your heart, and he knows everything. And some of you say, that does not sound like good news to me. Some of you think, he knows everything? He knows the bad things I've done that I've forgotten about? Yeah, 
He knows the bad things I've done that no one else knows about? Yeah. He knows the bad things I haven't done but really wish that I would have done or could have done or could do? Yeah. He knows everything. Believe it or not, John intends for that to be good news for you and me. Going back to my high school days, in high school I was a custodian at our church, Trinity Baptist. Did that in high school and college. And my mom was our children's director. And I remember a conversation, I had just come up to the church to work, got out of school, uh, sat down in her office, we were talking. And I'll be honest with you, I don't remember if this was before our uh, Hellfire and Brimstone revival preacher or after. I, I can't place it on a timeline. But we're sitting in her office having a conversation and she 100% convinced me that she had hired a private investigator who was following me around 24 hours a day. 100%. She threw it out there and said, and I don't remember what prompted it, but she threw that out there and I thought, Mom, come on, there's no way. And we kind of had some back and forth and she made some educated guesses probably. And I started to think, oh man, this is not good. Everywhere I went, I looked at people with suspicion. Like, are you the one? Are you? Hey, I saw you twice today. Is that a coincidence? You've been following me all day long. I drove five miles under the speed limit. I stopped at all the stop signs to a complete stop, and I looked both ways twice. Like, I was terrified. I thought, I'm not going to be able to get away with anything. And I'll be honest with you, it's not like I was trying to get away with drug deals or anything like that. But I just really thought, man, she has got me boxed in and I can't get away with anything. And eventually it wore off and I realized, yeah, that probably wasn't really what was going on. She would probably still try to convince me. Oh, no, I was following you around or I had somebody following you around. Look, John in this passage is not telling you that God has hired a PI to follow you around. He is telling you that God knows everything. Everything. He knows everything. And John intends for that to be good news. Listen, God knows the blackness of your heart far better than you do. You follow Jesus for any length of time. You live any amount of life. There will be times where you sort of look yourself in the spiritual mirror and say, how did that come from me? Am I really capable of that? Am I really this stubborn and this foolish? Am I really this stiff-necked and hard-hearted? Is that really me? And you will surprise yourself with your sin at times. God's not surprised. He knows it. He knows it far better. He knows the horror of our sin and the extent of our sin far better than we will ever know it. He knows everything. And he knows the good news of the gospel far better than we'll ever know it. From eternity past, he has known the Son. He knows why the Son was sent. He knows the mission of Jesus Christ to live for us, to die for us, to come back for us and to gather us into his people. He knows it. He knows it far better than we know it. 
I think about my experience, and as a, a young elementary student, I trusted in the gospel and through elementary school and middle school and high school and college and seminary, and today you learn more and you grow more and you take more in about the gospel. God knows all of it. He's not learning any of it. So John just stops and he says, look, here's the tests. It's entirely possible that your heart begins to condemn you and that your heart needs to be reassured. So here's the reassurance. God knows all of it. He is greater than your heart. And yet, many of us still struggle. Why do we do that? Why do we struggle with doubts? I think there's some helpful wisdom from James Boyce. He wrote a commentary on this book and he just says, why do we struggle? He says, for some of us, it's our disposition. Some of us are more introspective. Some of us are more melancholy. Some of us are more prone to be doomsdayers. Some of us are more prone to be overly analytical and maybe even overly critical. And so sometimes that's just your personality and you just tend to worry yourself into a tizzy. And you do that about all sorts of things. Maybe that's you. He says maybe it's health. And he's talking about physical health. He understands what many of us have experienced, that when you are physically unwell, that often leads to struggles on an emotional level or a mental level or even a spiritual level. Those things are connected. And one thinks of the book of Job and the connection between physical suffering and spiritual suffering. He says it could just be sin. He's certainly not suggesting that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that sin will cause you to lose your salvation. He knows, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what he's saying is, as a believer, if you just have a, a day or a week or a month or whatever where you're chasing sin and you're wrapped up in sin, you're probably not going to feel very close to the Lord. That's what sin does. It numbs us to the experience of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy. Chase it long enough and hard enough, your heart becomes hard and calloused and you end up not even caring about the things of God. It could be sin, it could be circumstances. It just could be the lot that you have in life. It could be the week, it could be the year 2020. We doubt, we struggle, we question. John knows that as a pastor and he says, look, I know your heart's going to condemn you. I know your heart is going to need reassurance. So here it is. I've laid out the tests. Don't forget, God is greater than your heart. He knows everything. And as he talks about this assurance, this knowing that we have in Jesus... He talks about some of the benefits. I want you to see these benefits. Three benefits of having assurance about our relationship with Jesus. Number one, we can have confidence before God. Confidence before God. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You remember the Wizard of Oz. You remember when Dorothy and her friends made it to the throne room of the great and terrible Oz for the very first time, and they're there arms interlocked side by side and they're shaking and they're shivering and they're quivering and they're terrified and they're falling all over themselves and they don't know what to say and I mean they're just absolutely cowering that's not how the believer approaches God 
The believer approaches God with a respect for his holiness and a, a certain sort of fear for his transcendence and his greatness and his glory and his majesty. But John says, look, when your heart does not condemn you, you have confidence before God. Boldness before God. How is that possible? It's possible because what John is describing is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God working together for our good and his glory. Look what he says in verse 20. God is greater than our hearts. He's talking to us about God the Father. Look what he says in verse 23. He talks about his son, Jesus Christ, who lived for us and died for us. Look what he says in verse 24. He talks about the Spirit whom he has given us. Father, Son, and Spirit working together, the triune God working together for our good, our confidence in his glory. Second benefit, we can receive answered prayer. Answered prayer. Verse 22, some of you picked up on this when we read it earlier. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. And some of you made a little note out in the margin that said Mercedes. Here we go. This is what I'm talking about. It's not what John's talking about, so I hope you wrote it in pencil. John says, look what he says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. If you're keeping God's commandments and you're doing what pleases God, you're going to be asking for the things that he wants, and John says you get it. It's essentially John's version of what we read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When God is what you delight in most, when God is what you want most, Good news. You get him. He's not reluctant to give that gift. He gives it freely, gladly. That's what John is saying here as he talks about prayer. We have confidence before God. We receive answered prayer. Thirdly, we experience a mutual abiding. A mutual abiding. Don't close your Bible. Look at verse 24. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. He doesn't repeat the verb, but it's implied. You keep God's commandments, you're abiding in God, and God is abiding in you. It's a mutual abiding. It's what Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's mutual abiding, will bear much fruit. The remarkable thought that the believer lives in and experiences God's presence and that God lives in the believer. A few weeks ago, we talked about the idea of the beatific vision, this idea that in the end, when Christ appears, when Christ returns, God's people will see him. We will know him. We will enjoy his unmediated direct presence. It's a great hope that we have. I just want you to understand, John is telling us it's not just hope for the future. You don't have to wait for the second coming of Jesus to enjoy and experience the presence of God in your life. He says it right here. If you keep God's commandments, you're passing these tests, you're loving the brothers, you're abiding in the truth about Jesus, you abide in God, God abides in you. You experience his presence right now. 
I realize you can't touch that. You can't point to that. You can't draw me a picture of that. You can't diagram how that works exactly. Just because you and I can't see the Holy Spirit living in us doesn't mean it's not real. In fact, in John's mind, this benefit that he's describing, this mutual abiding, I think John would say it's more real than the chair you're sitting on. You can see it. You can touch it. You're sitting on it. It's holding you up. It's very much real. And so is this. This benefit of having certainty that God is abiding in us and we are abiding in him. You know, at church, I don't ever want to be manipulative. I think it's entirely counterproductive. I don't ever want to try to scare people into making some sort of decision. I think that kind of decision is usually short-lived. I don't think that's the, the approach that Paul took when he says we've renounced all underhanded ways and we just make ourselves uh, before you, we present ourselves before you with a plain statement of the truth, a plain statement of the gospel. So I don't want to scare people. I don't want to manipulate people. I do want to be honest with people. We do want to be honest about biblical truth. Biblical truth is this. There is a God who is greater than you. He's greater than your heart. He knows everything. We've sung about him this morning. He's holy, holy, holy. He will not tolerate sin. He will not ignore it. The Bible says this holy, holy, holy God is also kind and merciful and gracious and loving. In fact, he's abounding in steadfast love and he's slow to anger. And out of his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kindness, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life of perfect obedience and to die on a cross as a perfect spotless sacrifice for our sins. The same God sends his spirit so that when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive together with Christ. When our eyes are blind to the truth of the gospel, he shines the light of the power of God and the glory of God so that we see the truth of the gospel. We can have life. We can have salvation. John doesn't just want you to believe. He wants you to believe. He also wants you to know He wants you to have certainty. He wants you to have confidence. And he grounds that ultimately not in our ability to pass a test, but he grounds that in who God is and what God has done for his people.